one of the reasons I, I was interested in the working so big is it was a piece about environmental catastrophe, right? You know, maybe scales appropriate in this case, given, you know, the pressing issues at hand that we're, we're facing today and having something really that consumed the viewer, right, was so big that they kind of were overwhelmed by it, seemed like the right kind of direction creatively. But on the other end of the spectrum, I've, I've often felt that really, you know, delicate small prints can have that similar quality. I'm thinking of, you know, even historic prints like Albert Durer, where you go up to them and they kind of overwhelm you, even though they're like only four by five inches or whatever, right? So there can be an interesting uh, parallel, I think, between small prints that sort of have an intense, expansive quality and then really large work. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 248th episode, I'm excited to be joined by Sean Caulfield, who spoke with me from up in Alberta, Canada. We talked briefly about meeting way back in 2000 at Illinois State University, where he's an assistant professor of printmaking. He has since gone on to become a centennial professor at the University of Alberta. It's amazing to me how recognizable Sean's work is. He builds these wonderfully abstract worlds with all of this beautiful visual language that explores ideas of the environment, the boundaries between the biological and the technological. We, of course, talk a bit about process and filling up stacks of sketchbooks with ideas that eventually become either prints or installations, mixed media works, sculptures. And we talk about that evolution and especially a lot of the collaborations that Sean continues to get excited about and explore in his studio practice. And I would lastly just highlight work. We talk at great length about just the importance of doing a work and a whole lot of it. So we'll talk all about that and his background coming up, so stay tuned for that. Make sure to check out his website, that's seancaulfield.ca. You can obviously find a lot of work there, as well as information about collaborative efforts and projects like covidcreative.ca, a virtual exhibition that's an artistic response to COVID-19 in Canada, and we talk about that towards the end of the interview. There's information there, so check it out. All of this info will be, of course, on studiobreak.com where we post this interview. Once again, we have a wide variety of different artists on studiobreak.com, each of which have images of their artwork, links to their websites, and of course, you can listen right there on Studio Break, or you can click those hyperlinks and subscribe to the podcast so you always have something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. You can, of course, find Studio Break on Facebook, so if you like it there, you will always know what's going on. You can find us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and, of course, on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. If you want to find out about me, it's davidlinaway.com, and, of course, you can follow me at David Linaway. All right, sit tight. Our interview with Sean Caulfield is coming up, so stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Sean Caulfield, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great, and it's great to be here. Absolutely. We maybe kind of met way back in 1999 when you were a professor at Illinois State University, an assistant professor, and you know now you are currently a centennial professor at the University of Alberta. And it's you know really interesting because I've always been fascinated by your work and seen it for years, and you know of course very familiar with it. So it's great to have you on and, and to talk to you all about your work today. So thanks for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure, and it's great to be able to share some thoughts about my work. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm especially interested in learning a little bit more about your background. I know that you have a lot of experience exhibiting and showing. You work in a variety of media that includes drawing and print and installation and kind of combinations of those, a lot of collaborations, publications. But, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? And we can go from there. Great. So I was originally born in the U.S., but pretty early in my life, my family moved to Canada. And my father moved here sort of for the oil business. Mm-hmm. And we lived in a fairly rural kind of environment, sort of on the outskirts of of a city. And I mention that just because I think growing up in a kind of, you know, the rural environment has had a long term impact on my work. You know, I think about landscape a lot. I think about the environment, the ways ecosystems change, the way environments change. And so I think on that level, that's what was important about my kind of upbringing. And so it was in uh, here in Alberta or Treaty 6 territory for most of my life I've, I've lived. And as you mentioned earlier, I did return to the States to teach for a while and then came back and was, you know, fortunate to kind of come back to sort of my hometown in a way. You know, thinking back on 
your experiences, you know, making art, was that something that was always something that you were passionate about? And I would imagine drawing has to be like at the very, like, pinnacle of that, but I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I, sometimes people ask me about sort of that period in, in my life. It sounds like a kind of a cliche, but it's really true. I've just always drawn, you know, and the path of wanting to be a visual artist was pretty early. Like, I don't really recall a time when I thought about another kind of route for my life. So in that sense, I feel fortunate. You know, I know some people go through periods where they're kind of searching for a direction or what they want to do. And in all honesty, it really was something that I've always was at the kind of core of, of what I wanted to pursue, you know, and, you know, grew up in a, in a household that um, supported creative activities hundred percent. And uh, on that level, I feel really lucky. And there was never any question about that being a bad path or not a, to be a lawyer or something. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I thought maybe hockey, you know, since yeah. we were talking yeah. earlier that you, eventually became quite the uh, intensive hockey player <laughs> and normal. So I'm curious, like, was there like any kind of like formal education relative to that? Were you just kind of making things on your own or did you have any of that kind of background, say, you know, like grade school, high school kind of thing? I had, I think, the typical training you see in public schools here in Canada, probably similar in the U.S. where you have an art class. But slowly as I went through and, you know, kind of entered into high school, junior, late junior high, there started to be a little bit more focus. And there was some like commercial art classes or upper level art classes that I definitely took. And I'm grateful for those. You know, those were important. And, you know, when, you, when you're young to, to have a class and have a teacher that lets you know that this is a valid kind of route, right? It's important, I think. And in addition to that, again, I'm grateful for a home where, I mean, it was a very creative home. You know, in addition to visual art, we were always playing music. And so I think it was a combination of those two things that let, led me on a path where I felt confident to pursue this in a more serious way. And in terms of like outside of that kind of environment, I mean, what types of things did you like to do out, outside of just art and music and, you know, maybe the typical things? Because, you know, there's such an interest in your work to me, thinking about like landscape and, and place. And so that certainly is something that I think about, you know, um, <laughs> like you're maybe left in the woods a lot or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really glad to hear you say that because in some ways that's precisely what happened. Of course, I did the normal sort of things young people do, but I definitely spent a lot of time outside. I would spend hours just walking, you know, in, in the fields and in this kind of rural environment that we're in. And so, yeah, absolutely. This has had a lasting impact on me. And I go back now that I live close to my childhood home. And of course, it's transformed. There's, you know, a lot more suburban growth. And all of that continues to interest me because at a very young age, I was sort of thinking about you could sort of see, you know, industrial growth creeping up on the landscape or more urbanization. And all of that is is something that's interesting to me and you know of course a little bit troubling too this is a big question in our world today right yeah absolutely and you know having interviewed some artists relative to that area and the way that oil exports and things like that have kind of impacted the environment i would think that that's something that you can't kind of escape absolutely and you know and, and of course on the flip side my as i mentioned earlier my father was in the oil business and my oldest brother continues to be in the oil you know he's a geophysicist so it's a complex thing, right? People need to have jobs and support their families. And so it's it's not easy to to figure out how to transition. And I'm sympathetic to, to those people that are losing their jobs because of the way the oil industry is going. Mm-hmm. On one hand, but on the other hand, you know, we need to change, right? So it's it's complex. It's not an easy not an easy thing. And then plus you're inking up plates and, and whatnot, so there's a maybe a little bit of a, a- you know, chemical relationship there, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's a big question, right? That you're asking there. You hypocrite. Come on. Um, yeah. <laughs> again, I'm just being silly. I think I've been on, on a zoom too long today already. So I apologize. You no, know, I think that's an interesting question. I think about it a lot. You know, this, this, this question of artists producing things today, right? What does it mean? What's the responsibility? Mm-hmm. What do you do about it? It's a huge question and an important one. And, it's a complex question too, and I wouldn't suggest I have an easy answer or any answer. But one one thing I think about a lot is that the idea that I do think art is incredibly important to help us sort out 
societal problems, right? No, absolutely. Yeah, and to help us kind of think through things. So on that level, I do think, you know, the production of things has it, you know, it's justified in a sense, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't, you know, think very carefully about it and, you know, continually question, is this a responsible way to move forward or not? And I, and I, I wrestle with that all the time. Well, so kind of thinking back again to earlier experiences, you know, what types of things were you interested in making, you know, before you started like a, like a formal education and, and, college were you kind of illustrating a lot you know on one level i think when you first get into visual art it's it's the kind of joy of just drawing and can you draw things in the world and make them look like they're you know real and have form and shape and all that i think that was sort of a starting point but again pretty early some of my drawing began to look to the landscape and you know sometimes just simple landscape work and then simultaneously pretty early on i had an interest in art history mm-hmm. and I remember, I still have the book, I had this old book of etchings and woodcuts, and something about that graphic language really captivated me. And the, and the fact that it came from this different time period and the kind of mystery of that captivated me. So I think that was another side of sort of feeding creative interests, in addition to kind of looking at, at the environment around me. Well, and it's such an interesting language, you know, when I when I think of something like printmaking or maybe early experiences, you know, being exposed to printmaking and have no idea how this thing is made. And it's so different than just drawing in terms of how direct it can be. And so I would imagine, you know, that would be something that kind of changed some things in terms of, you know, what your potentials were. But again, I I don't know what the order of those things happened with in terms of, you know, starting printmaking. Was that something that you, you know, learned when you were, you know, pursuing your, your undergraduate degree? Yeah. I first, uh, came across printmaking in undergrad, that's right. And, you know, I think like many undergrad students sort of in second year, you know, I finish a foundation year and then introduced to this thing, printmaking. And right away, there was something about it that just captured my imagination. Difficult to maybe even pin down exactly what that is. But again, maybe something about the graphic language of it, the fact that it was sort of process based and, and things were sort of delayed and Maybe also something about the fact that you had to kind of interact with material in a different way. Instead of drawing directly, cut a block, right? And there's resistance to the wood, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it captivated you know, pretty quickly, I think. And, you know, kind of thinking back to those early studies, and I know that we won't dwell too long necessarily on these, but, you know, how did that kind of experience kind of, I don't know, elevate what it is that you came to it with? I know that, you know, for most undergraduate students, there's, you know, those necessary classes where you're kind of learning technical things and then you start to kind of learn to explore your own path, you know, obviously guided by faculty, but you know, what types of things were you interested in, in doing at, at maybe those times, or at least maybe in that experience? That's an interesting question. Cause I, you know, I think back and to the undergrad experience and I just, you know, one of my strong memories to be quite frank is just working nonstop, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, sort of just being in the studio, you know, all hours. And I'm mentioning that because I, I guess where I'm going with this is in some ways I'm, I think I might be more, I was more focused on the kind of physical action mm-hmm. as on, I mean, of course they were encouraging me to think about concepts and that sort of thing, but my strongest memories are not of like thinking through particular themes, but rather kind of just being with material. Does that make sense? No, no, I think that makes sense as you're kind of learning new materials. And one of the random stories I remember hearing about you is working on a plate while you're at a conference uh, in the hotel room. So (laughs) the idea of always working and having like that work ethic, I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, considering the the labor involved, especially, you know, the the things that I'm imagining take so much time now. You know, I would imagine that had to start really early on. I'm especially interested, like in terms of like, say, wrapping that experience, I mean, were you kind of making these fantastical kind of landscapes then? Yeah, no, that's because, of course, I mentioned this kind of fascination in, in terms of working, but there was, of course, ideas as well. And the work was much more abstract mm-hmm. than making now. And that may have partly been influenced by the time period, right? But even though it was abstract, there was maybe linkages to the kind of forms I'm still interested in. But kind of more raw and more gestural, but forms that 
suggested a tension between maybe the biological and the mechanistic were kind of present still in those early early days, but again, in a kind of more abstract gestural language. I guess in short, what I'm saying is when I look back at the work, I can see the sort of seeds of, of ideas in terms of the forms and, and compositional things I was sort of wrestling with. I'm, I'm curious, were there any artists that stand out to you that kind of maybe showed you what you could do with art that was kind of like inspiring or kind of motivated you? I do want to acknowledge I had some great instructors who later became colleagues, people like Walter Jewell, Liz Ingram, Lyndall Osborne. They were all in the print area and they were great mentors and they definitely, you know, they were an influence for sure. Beyond that, gee, you know, it's hard to pinpoint, especially in undergrad, you look at so much work, right? Sure. <laughs> you try to take in as much as you can. I, I will say maybe one thing that was significant was we had a visiting artist from Japan when I was in my fourth year. No, I, I st- I'm getting time confused here. It was my first year of grad studies. But anyway, I'll share the story. His name was Ryoji Ikeda. And, you know, he's terrific, terrific artist. And I love his work. I wouldn't say it sort of directly looks like mine or anything, but the experience of printing with someone and working with someone from a different culture, that was a really rich thing and, and really stayed with me and ultimately ended up influencing my life pretty profound ways. And so there's that aspect too that's always so fascinating to me about print is that there's this kind of quality where everybody has to kind of share this space. They have to utilize this space together. There's a sense of community that's always struck me. Painter, you know, who <laughs> closes their door. You know, printmakers don't have that luxury. So that's something that's always fascinated me is that influence of other artists and, you know, sharing a space and helping someone roll out a rainbow roll or, you know, something, put it through the press, make sure everything's going well. So that that's actually really interesting to think about. And obviously we'll have some time to kind of maybe talk about some of those collaborative efforts that kind of maybe spiderwebs off of that a little bit. Um, so thinking about this in terms of like continuing that experience is we were just talking about graduate school. So you studied at the, the University of Alberta? Yeah, which is, you know, unusual. I, you know, as a professor today, I usually recommend my students go to a different institution, you know, but <laughs> sure. I ended up going to the same institution that I did my undergrad at. And I do think there are times when it is the right decision. And, and you know, looking back, it seems like it was for me. Mm-hmm. But yes, I ended up going to the same program as my undergrad. And then to come back and be teaching here again is is kind of interesting. <laughs> Having said all that, though, I did have a bit more of a focus. I didn't mention this, I guess. I should have in painting, actually, in undergrad. Okay. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I certainly did a lot of print in undergrad, but uh, there, I had a big focus in painting, maybe a kind of 50-50. And in a way, grad school was a little bit of a shift in that uh, the focus you know, shifted over primarily to print, right? So in a sense, it was, well, very different experience than than my undergrad because of that kind of shift in focus, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm always curious about, too, having never visited the University of Alberta, is the print facilities are supposed to be pretty immaculate and wide-ranging. So to kind of be in that environment where you're maybe having all of these facilities to do different processes, I'm sure that's also something that had to, you know, be expanded on in graduate school. Yeah, absolutely. Again, really, really lucky. We have a really strong facility here for sure. You're right. That's another reason why I did decide to go to the same school as my undergrad, because there was just so much opportunity to explore really interesting things because of the of the uh, infrastructure and the professors, too, of course, were, were outstanding. What was the uh, curveball that was thrown at you in, in graduate school? I know that, again, it tends to be filled with them. As As I was kind of describing earlier, there's kind of like this transition where you're you know, moving from projects to doing your own work. And then you kind of, you know, hit this point where your professors start kind of trashing you and <laughs> maybe, maybe you start taking those long walks again. But, you know, is there things that stick out from that experience that, you know, kind of helped you find a footing or your own place? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess one of the things I would say is it sort of circles back to what I was describing in my undergrad where I had this kind of frantic approach to the studio that, you know, had to do with a kind of obsessive working, right? Mm-hmm. And I carried that into grad school, but of course our strengths are our weaknesses, right? And the need to slow yourself down, 
the need to think more conceptually or thematically about things has to be fostered too, right? And I think for me, that was one, I mean, there was many great lessons, but that was a big one in, in grad school was negotiating that, you know, learning to slow down, learning to be more reflective, not kind of working at such a frenetic pace, if that makes sense. And I don't know <laughs> that I've ever fully learned that lesson, but. Well, I would imagine, you know, it's really hard as I'm looking at your work and it's uh, ca. Yep. So again, plenty of work to check out on, on your website. You know, I would imagine the idea of editing yourself or f- figuring out where to stop has got to be something that's always been an issue when I when I think of <laughs> you talking about that in terms of always having to work, you know. But to kind of think about that that experience and kind of maybe around the time that I met you then. So this is when you kind of really start developing this language. Yeah. So again, maybe coming out of some of the things we've already talked about, I think around the time, you know, that I was at ISU, I sort of began to th- I guess work a little less abstractly. I mean, work is all, always still abstract to a point, but there's maybe a stronger reference to the real world mm-hmm. or to forms that you could imagine existing in the real world, right? And then a reinvestigation of, of this, my relationship to landscape and the way it's changing. And uh, at that time, a, kind of a very simple working method unfolded where I would go for walks in rural environments or, you know, sort of rural urban spaces that, you know, where the two meet. And then I'd go back to the studio and I'd draw from memory. Often they would be memories of, of architectural forms or industrial forms. And those drawings would just sort of unfold organically. And then from those, I would I would begin to build prints. And um, But largely around this kind of tension between the organic and the mechanistic. And so like in terms of those things that you're abstracting from them, I mean, is there characteristics that you're kind of taking from your memory to think about something that would be, you know, cause there's, I don't know, there's almost like this element of like some of the things in your work, obviously acting as kind of like symbols or, you know, stand-ins for something else. It kind of makes me think of like a, a CD underworld to reality. For me, I, I think I would turn to forms that, that kind of operated in a couple of ways or, suggested to me that they operate in a couple ways. One would be that they might imply a reference to the body. Mm-hmm. So they would have a figurative sense, but not literally be a figure, right? And so that would, I think, do a couple things, suggest that they have a kind of character and the characters existing in this kind of landscape environment, right? And then the other thing is an interest in creating images that kind of emotively had a tension between, you know, on the one hand feeling almost sort of whimsical and absurd. And on the other hand, having a kind of a threatening quality. And maybe this is what you were just speaking to and that both things sort of exist together. And that's kind of what I was thinking about. Cause there's, you know, like a surface level that you see things and then this other kind of layer. And I think that's something that really kind of sticks out, you know, in terms of looking at your work is that there's this, like I said, almost like a filter that I start kind of thinking about things with. Yeah, and I, I, maybe another side to what you're talking about is also my interest in in history. So looking at a lot of historic prints that do have, say, even religious sources or mystical sources, and then drawing on that at a, as a kind of distant source, maybe that's present in the work to a certain degree. You know, you were kind of describing, you know, starting off with you know, maybe taking a walk, doing some drawings and and things like that to kind of maybe start generating some ideas is interesting to think about, you know, how you start utilizing all these different processes. So I'm especially curious, you know, where, where, where they all sit, you know, where you decide to focus on, you know, polished drawings versus prints versus an installation. It's a, it's a good question. Um, I guess I would say first off that I just have a lot of sketchbooks that I just, you know, I'm sort of always kind of drawing, and so in those sketchbooks, I'm trying to be pretty free-flowing and not conceive of drawings for a particular purpose necessarily. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back and sort of reflect on them every once in a while and pull things out that will then lead me to make work from it. And I guess, you know, it's an interesting question because about if I look back at the arc of my creative practice, you know, about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I was taking those drawings and then saying, oh, that feels like an etching or that feels like a woodcut. 
Whereas now things have shifted a little bit because I've been involved in a lot of uh, more collaborative projects mm -hmm. and they have a kind of thematic framework already. And so on some levels, maybe I know ahead of time that they're going to be silk screens or they're going to be woodcuts. And so that that's not so much playing into the decision making. Anyway, all that to say, there's been a little bit of a shift there in terms of how the drawings relate to, to final works. Yeah, and I would imagine that that's something that allows you to kind of explore new territory, even in terms of collaborations. You know, there's publications, there's installations with other artists. I would imagine that that's something that can really help guide it or set it off in a new direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love to collaborate, and there's lots of reasons, but this is a, is a key one for sure. And this idea of, you know, trying to expand your practice and change your practice. And, you know, this is, I think, one of the big challenges of being an artist is how much do you keep the thread of your practice the same and how much do you kind of radically shift things, right? And it's an, it's an ongoing question and it's, a, it's one that never is resolved. And I certainly think I've, uh, in the past, made the mistake of keeping the thread too similar, you know, at times. Mm -hmm. And working with others hopefully has helped to kind of open things at times when it needs to open. But it's not an easy question. I mean, sometimes you can kind of ping pong around too much, right? And, and your work lacks a kind of cohesive quality. Other times you can repeat yourself too much. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, balancing act. So if we maybe take a look at one of your umbrellas, again, there's a, <laughs> a lot of things under your umbrella, but, you know, even just to kind of think about maybe some of the, the drawings on, uh, you know, your site and thinking back to your exhibition endpoint, maybe talk to us a little bit about maybe the, the process of how you might work through something like that, that might've been different from maybe some of the work that came previously or, you know, how that becomes specific for that show. It's a good question because we've been talking about landscape a lot, but I've also had a real interest in, in the figure and the body, but maybe more through the lens of, of biomedicine. This is a good time to note that um, among the people I collaborate with is my brother, Timothy Caulfield, who's also a professor here at the University of Alberta, uh, and his, he's in the area of health law. So he does a lot of work around bioethics and increasingly around issues of the impact of popular culture of media on how we think about health. Mm -hmm. Bring that up because he can't remember the date of the show, but it was called Perceptions of Promise. And he sort of initiated the project and he brought together a, gr a very interdisciplinary group uh, that included artists, but also biomedical researchers, bioethicists, you know, a very interdisciplinary group. And we looked at the issue of stem cell research. And we, we were interested in it because, you know, it's an interesting field, period, but it also raises lots of tough ethical questions particularly around embryonic stem cell research, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the drawings I think you're referring to came from that project. And I, I created those drawings, you know, thinking about the things I was learning about stem cell research, thinking about the things I was learning about contemporary biomedical research, but also looking back at the history of anatomy and thinking about the relationship of art and science over, over time. And in the end, I hope to create drawings that, spoke to the history of anatomy that spoke to the sense of, of the body but were also ambiguous and that the viewer could you know kind of sense the body but not totally figure it out so to speak and again as i've mentioned before i also wanted to create drawings that had a kind of a whimsical quality on the one hand but on the other hand were sort of threatening and to me that was an interesting parallel to how we maybe often feel as a society about technology and and biomedical research on the one hand it's sort of you know hopeful and and you know will, will, will sort of save us so to speak on the other hand there's anxiety about its negative impacts well and speaking about this work specifically you kind of described basing some previous work off of memory and kind of working up some drawing ideas how how is this different are you looking at like you know, medical books and illustrations or anything like that? Or are you kind of imagining the way that they might look in, in the language that you develop? So it, it's similar in some senses, but a little bit different. And, and I guess during that project, I had the, you know, was fortunate enough that I was able to go to actually some stem cell conferences. And it was an interesting experience because, you know, a lot of it was 
way over my head. I'm not trained as a biomedical researcher and a lot of the kind of nuance of what they were talking about, I couldn't understand. I could access, I think, some of the broader principles and some of the questions in terms of the ethical issues. But during that experience, I would draw a lot actually in the sort of audience, so to speak, and then simultaneously look at historic anatomical work. And then from those two sources, I would go and again work from memory, but having done that sort of initial research. So it's related to the landscape work in a sense that I still kind of, would, once I'm in the studio working from memory, but the research was was different and that it was more focused on the body and on this this experience of hearing biomedical researchers talk about their own work. Is that something that allows you to explore new processes and, and new media? I noticed there's some that explore things like plexiglass even. So for something like the anatomy table, it kind of brings into this new investigation, but it still kind of explores the idea of the figure. Yeah, that was an interesting project. One thing I wanted to note is one of the researchers that was involved in the stem cell project later approached me and said, do you want to do another collaborative initiative? And again, it was a a sort of a big team, but this time focused on vaccines, which is very (laughs) relevant. Sure, sure. And all, all that to say is I think if anyone's listening or interested in collaboration, it's it's interesting to note how these things can kind of snowball and you meet one person and that sort of creates a network. Anyway, getting back to the piece, though, it came out of this project to look at vaccines. And it, the idea was we'd asked all sorts of questions around vaccines. And again, it was a big team. Different aspects were explored. But at one point, it, we committed to showing at the UN AIDS building in Geneva. And we were fortunate in that we could travel there first and look at the space and then go, go away and make work. And for anyone who's ever been there, they know that the space has these huge sort of beautiful windows and a, a kind of grid space. And so I thought, in this instant, I wanted to make work that responded to that grid. And with that in mind, I made work that was more transparent and that the kind of light could shine through. Mm-hmm. You know, what you're asking there is, is right. The, the project itself forced me to kind of rethink how I was going to use material and process and, and, and that sort of thing to produce a work. The work also draws heavily on, on, again, the history of science and the history of anatomy because I appropriated directly Vesalius's famous work, you know, the 16th century anatomist who made the famous work on the fabric of the human body. And I, I used that as a starting point, and then I layered kind of my own drawings over top of it. Yeah, that's interesting to think about how, you know, that collaborative effort comes about. And then also there's so many other areas, you know, we haven't even talked about print. So, for example, there's a series of prints, uh, River Wind on your website. That's a series of Lionel Cuts. Maybe you could, you know, talk a little about those and maybe even explain what a, a Lionel Cut is in case somebody doesn't know. That project was interesting. It's actually, I need to update my website. It's since changed. It's now called Water Circle. Uh, And I mentioned that because it's now been turned into an artist book. And it ended up being another collaboration with my oldest brother, Case Caulfield, who wrote a poem, and then a designer, Sue Kohlberg. But to get back to the heart of your question, yeah, this is one of the great things about print. And again, one of the reasons really early on I was interested in it is with a process like lino cut, where you it's a relief printmaking process where you actually have to cut out the areas you don't want to print there's a kind of resistance to the material, right? There's a kind of, I mean, lino is fairly soft, but it's still sort of, you have to work at it in a different way than you would say if you have a piece of charcoal on paper. And of course, every process has different sorts of resistance or or characteristics. But for me, it's really interesting to sort of see how my drawing is transformed because of the resistance of the material. And also, I guess, in in relation to print is because it's also process-based, right? Where you know, you have to cut and then ink and then print and proof. And there's this sort of delay, if you will. And for me, that delay is a positive thing rather than a negative thing as it as it sort of slows me down and forces me to kind of reflect on how, how things are unfolding. Mm-hmm. And with that project that you mentioned, I wanted to make this long, expensive landscape with a kind of river winding through it that seemed to be going through this sort of chaotic sort of transformation and there was something about the Lionel cut and its graphic punch that seemed really appropriate for the for the ideas. So, and the kind of black of the Lionel cut that you know is different than anything else you know you can get in any other medium, right? Like it's really solid and and you know pops. Is that what you mean? 
Yeah, precisely. And when it sits on the page, I mean, woodcut is similar in a way, but there's the grain of the wood. So lino has a flatness about it that it maybe kind of pops even more. And yeah, there's a kind of graphic punch to that, to it that seemed to fit the, the concepts and the ideas and the themes that I was trying to pursue in that kind of landscape that was in, in a sort of state of chaos and transformation. And is this one that you're speaking about specifically the one River Wind, the, the really long 84-inch one? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, again, it's fascinating to kind of, you know, look through these works and kind of see some of the forms and the way that they kind of shift and transform. You know, as somebody that might be working in a number of different media, is this something that then is really like 100% based off of like a preliminary work? Or is it something that allows you that kind of flexibility to, you know, start start piecing this together? I'm curious, like, like where improvisation fits in or if there is, you know, part of that to the process or because I would think somebody looking at this is like, wow, this has got to be really planned out and precise. And yeah, another great question, because you know, we were talking about drawing a lot earlier and I mentioned that I have all these sketchbooks. But what I didn't mention was when I go to a plate, I will try to limit the amount that I draw on it or, or pre-plan. I'll, I'll sketch out a kind of rough uh, framework, but I'll leave it really open and then I'll just start to carve. And the idea being just what you were alluding to that rather than the process of carving being just a kind of, you know, cutting what's there uh, in, a, in a planned way that there's a kind of sense of discovery as I cut. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that kind of energy uh, is apparent to the viewer that you can you can sense this kind of discovery unfolding. And so, yeah, that's how I approach most of the blocks or, or prints I work on. And again, that's that's an interesting question that's beyond print. It's it's about how much does an artwork, how much is it planned and how much do you let improvisation play into things? And of course, most interesting artworks have this right tension, right, between those two two forces. Well, and to me, it's interesting just because it's such a removed process. You know, you have to you have to take the time to to ink it up and run it through a press and and see what this thing looks like. Whereas, you know, like you were kind of mentioned earlier, like charcoal on paper, you see that kind of immediately. And that's something that's really fascinating to me. But I almost think about it the same way that, you know, a hyper representational, you know, artist might kind of, you know, be working from observation so much that they can then kind of I guess, perform, you know what I mean? In a way it's like you're, you know, performing that action because you put in all of this work to be able to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the other great thing about a process like woodcut or relief or lino cut, which again, I think has parallels in many mediums is once you cut something, it's gone, right? Like if you make a mistake, it's gone. But that sort of problem solving is, is of course also super beneficial as an artist. It's, okay. What, how, what am I going to do now? How am I going to cut my way out of this? so to speak. Sure, sure. (laughs) And that's, uh, you know, that's a good thing, I think, for artists to be in that position. Like relative to scale, you know, when does that start to kind of really expand for you? Because, you know, I I noticed that, again, we start getting prints that are essentially like person size. And also you're kind of like showing these blocks, obviously, that you've kind of worked through. So they start to kind of become, you know, human scale. But then there's ones that are just massive. And I guess, you know, to kind of think about how they, you know, relate, you know, because there's certainly like a a way that they are so open-ended that you can kind of almost talk about print the same way that you could talk about, you know, like a piece, like the installation, uh, The Flood, which again is just massive. Um, So I don't know, maybe talk a little about that idea of scale relative to your work and some of these processes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, The Flood was an interesting project. It kind of came out of another collaboration in a sense. Uh, I have a colleague, Royden Mills, who's a sculptor here uh, in our community. And we did a couple of collaborations and he was working larger scale. And I found myself sort of making bigger and bigger works as we collaborated to kind of speak to the scale he was working at. And I also found myself working more on wood. I think it was maybe a response to his material choices too. And so that sort of unfolded and I ended up making some fairly large blocks. And then I was approached by the curator at the Art Gallery of Alberta at the time, Christy Trenier. And, you know, we were talking about an exhibition and she suggested this really huge piece. And I, you know, I had never thought to work that big. And I mentioned this because I, I think it's a, for me, it was a really good example of a positive relationship of a curator challenging me in a way 
beyond my, you know, comfort zone. And so I ended up making this print that was 22 by 30 inches. Sorry, feet. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of things about that in, in relationship to scale, I guess what was interesting about it is my studio was not big enough to ever see the piece. So I'd always have to kind of slide blocks over and imagine how it's going to be in the end, right? And I didn't ever saw the piece until it was installed. And so in a way that gets back to the print process itself where there's this kind of delay, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that was interesting though was trying to think about, you know, the practical thing of just shifting the mark, you know, the scale of the mark, right? And the pace of the mark and where is their intense mark and where is their kind of more open mark. And in the end, I, I ended up, kind of doing this dance between some areas that were quite time consuming, you know, really focused and lots of carving and then other areas that would be carved really quickly with like grinding tools and that sort of thing. And so that, that was an interesting kind of back and forth, but maybe to circle back to your question a little bit more, one thing I did notice that I, th- I think is interesting is the, one of the reasons I, I was interested in the working so big is it was a piece about, kind of environmental catastrophe, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe scale is appropriate in this case, given, you know, the pressing issues at hand that we're we're facing today and having something really that consumed the viewer, right, was so big that they kind of were overwhelmed by it, seemed like uh, the right kind of direction creatively. But on the other end of the spectrum, I've, I've often felt that really, you know, delicate small prints can have that similar quality. I'm thinking of, you know, even historic prints like Albrecht Durer, where you go up to them and they kind of overwhelm you, even though they're like only four by five inches or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So there can be an interesting uh, parallel, I think, between small prints that sort of have an intense, expansive quality and then really large work. And maybe that's part of what I was looking at when I was making that piece. I don't know if all that makes sense or not, but... Yeah, no, I mean, again, as someone that has worked, you know, to to make, well, nowhere near 30 feet <laughs> or 20 feet tall work, you know, you kind of explore scale and you definitely think about that. Cause I, and so I would imagine there's gotta be something also very exciting then when you're, I'm imagining like, you know, all these blocks on the ground or, you know, like you're saying, you can't see this thing in its entirety. So there's something really interesting and surprising about that process, I would imagine. But obviously too, to kind of see the scale of it, you know, again, it's, it's multiple people high. So there's this kind of expansiveness where you've taken maybe this tiny landscape and then made it this, you know, massive landscape. Yeah. And the process of making it was interesting too, because as you say, I did have to cut it on the floor. So even physically, my relationship to it was kind of shifting, right? Sometimes it'd be on the floor, sometimes be in the wall. Yeah. And again, a positive thing about maybe challenging yourself to work at a scale that's not what you think initially comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of continuing along the installation thread, there's a number of, you know, exhibitions where there's still print, but then there's also these pieces that start to become sculptural installation works. And I'm thinking of uh, fire damp, for example, you know, where it looks like, again, you know, something that might be kind of related to that idea of the environment. And then these, you know, forms, you know, that are on the wall that are, you know, very similar to some of the forms that you kind of work up in your prints. Maybe tell us a little bit about this exhibition. Again, I think some of that work came out of this experience of collaborating with a sculptor, right? Where I just started to learn and think three-dimensionally a little bit more. Because when I was working with Royden Mills, we literally sort of made some pieces together. So I, I think that's part of where that came from. Part of it, too, though, was an interest in having a, an experience for a viewer where they weave in and out of pictorial space, where they're kind of looking at a window and then having that window sort of spill out into the physical world, into their space, and the kind of hopefully interesting play that could happen. And um, I think part of it maybe is is thinking about wanting the viewer to have a slightly different physical relationship to the work. I don't know if it's necessarily better or worse or, or more complex, but just mm-hmm. is interested in thinking about that creatively and what that might do and how that might expand the ideas that I was exploring. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I'm taking notes and I'm just kind of going like, okay, the, what's the relationship of the the physical things that you're making that you never see? And obviously, as I was talking earlier, 
you know, those, those blocks start making their way in and then these sculptural forms. So again, it's really kind of interesting because, you know, part of it is like you've been laboring over things that nobody ever sees. And I think it's interesting to start kind of incorporating those. Another thing that kind of sticks out to me too, is that sense of whimsy is really interesting. There's, you know, this one piece that's kind of like, you know, connected to the, this part of the ceiling, you know, where there's this wood beam kind of going through it. So like, to me, it's, it's something interesting because that space that was contained before in a print or, you know, some of those other, other 2d works, you know, now become these, you know, things that people can kind of interact with or think about in their actual space a little bit differently. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose one thing that was interesting to me too, is of course, prints in many cases, I could still do both. So for example, we, we were talking about the flood earlier, and I showed the actual blocks for that piece, but I also printed it. And I'm bringing that up because, of course, that led to a further kind of expansion in that I started to do public paste-ups of, of the prints. So this was, yet, I guess, another dimension where the the print work enters into the public space out of the gallery, right? Mm-hmm. So again, maybe one of the great things about uh, print that I love is it has this kind of flexibility where the block is sculpture in a se- sculptural in a sense, and of course could literally become a sculpture, but it's also something you can print from. And then the print is a multiple, and it can it can exist in these various formats and these various kind of public realms. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to kind of see the way that that kind of gets explored in various projects. So another one that stuck out to me was the the dead weight installation. Mm-hmm. Because literally, like, again, we were talking about rivers at, at some point, and certainly that's maybe a, a thematic idea in some of the work, you know, but literally there is this, you know, massive, what looks like a boat kind of related or standing next to another piece. And again, maybe talk a little bit about about that, because I'm, again, there's some of them that I'm kind of like, is this a painting? Is this a print? Is this a mixed media work? Yeah, that um, exhibition, it was definitely a project where I was thinking about water and you know, there had been a couple instances in, in our province where some tailing ponds, you know, from mining had broken and caused issues around pollution in the water. So it led me to want to make some work that sort of focused on water. And and simultaneously, you know, I had been showing blocks and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if the sculpture literally emerged out of the kind of the block so that the two-dimensional and the three-dimensional space sort of came together. And then finally also this idea of would you – literally walk on the block as I had been doing in the studio, you know, cutting and walking on the block. So I ended up making this floor piece that's all carved with this sculptural boat on it. And yeah, and and what it is exactly, you know, I I don't know that it's too important to worry about. I think hopefully in the end, it's just the right combination of form, form and content, you know, to make an effective piece, right? Well, there's always just something so fascinating and intriguing about it because it doesn't, again, it doesn't seem like it's, something that's a, a single glance, you know, and that maybe that's maybe a bad question to ask, <laughs> you know, relative to the amount of time kind of put into it. But again, there's just looks like there's this consumption that goes into to making it, you know, in terms of time. And, you know, that's really evident to me, but kind of in a similar way then, you know, like I see this wall piece that's, that's massive. And I just think like, you know, there's definitely a lot that went into to creating this. What's, what's, again, how's that relationship of time changed or is it just something that is necessary to, to complete your work? That's a couple thoughts there. I mean, one is that, you know, we, way back at the start of our discussion, I was talking about, you know, learning to slow down and learning to kind of make space for reflection. And I think I'm drawn to processes that are labor intensive now for that reason that I, you know, I'll set out a problem creatively that it just demands a kind of slower pace Mm -hmm. and then I can return to the work and it unfolds over a long period rather than, you know, you make a drawing in an evening. So stated differently, I think the question is, is around, you know, what's the best pace for work? Do you work quickly? Do you work slowly? Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is again, another interesting creative question that all artists kind of wrestle with. And right now, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with processes that tend to be quite labor intensive and, and I'm drawn to that. And, you know, it's interesting. We're all going through this um, terrible lockdown now and having a different kind of relationship to time mm-hmm. and in a way having more time in the studio in some senses, but also kind of less time because of other pressures. So 
I'm not really making sense there, except I've noticed <laughs> that uh, this recent, you know, tough time has has also shifted the way I think about, you know, working over, working in the studio because it, it seems like the, my relationship to time has changed for all of us, really, in a way, right? Yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting because, like you're kind of describing, there's periods of time where you might have been you know, like very singular, you know, this is this thing that I have to finish today or, you know, this week, and then I'm going to move on to the next thing. I would imagine just kind of based on, you know, some of the more recent installations, you know, that have these, you know, sculptural elements, these physical elements that they might require, you know, uh, more time in between, you know, maybe if you go back to something, I guess in a way that maybe, I don't know, I almost think of as printmaking, maybe having to be more singular, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. And, and, it's not only that there's sort of works that maybe unfold over time slowly because of labor, but because of kind of just existing in the studio in an unresolved state for a while and then slowly coming together, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, completely. Uh, and I've enjoyed that. And I think taking the pressure off of trying to like finish a single piece and letting several things sort of um, come up slowly together and then coalescing into a work has been interesting as well to kind of, you know, explore. Since you brought up the, the pandemic and the time that we're living in, you know, I think this would be appropriate to, to talk about this uh, collaboration infodemic. So yeah. maybe talk a little about that again. It seems really interesting to think about that idea of collaboration and it, you know, seems to keep coming up in, in ways that it kind of influences the work and gives it a new direction. Uh, but these pieces again, kind of involve text as well as, as your visuals, I would imagine. This project was interesting. As an aside, just to get into it, I, I should note that I have a, another wonderful colleague here, Marilyn Oliver, and we did a different collaboration together called Evolving Anatomies that I used Vesalius again as a kind of source. Anyway, that piece that I did with Marilyn sort of was resolved and we showed it at a few places. And then we were hit with this pandemic. And I had started a couple of smaller works that you know had used Vesalius and uh, then the pandemic hit and it was like, oh, you know, such a strange time. And my brother turned to me again and, and suggested that I participate in a, in a project he was working on. And the focus of his project was around impact of misinformation on, you know, how public health is dealing with COVID, you know, government policy, that sort of thing. And as we all know, you know, the spread of misinformation can be devastating, right? It can really impact the way people respond to uh, health messaging and people can lose their lives, right? Because they're, they're following information that's not right. Mm -hmm. So he was looking at ways to respond to that. I then sort of developed, started to get into those, those initial images that I had started with Vesalius and started to make a series and they're all 23 by 23 inches and they combine digital images. So again, appropriated parts of the Vesalius anatomy and then over top, I have these relief prints and they explore things I've, I've explored previously, you know, forms that sort of speak to body parts that feel like they could be an organ or, or a set of lungs. Ultimately, I wanted to create forms that sort of maybe spoke to the anxiety we're feeling around all of this, you know, a form that might seem like it's someone coughing or a, a set of lungs or that sort of thing. And but at the same time, there's a little bit of an absurd whimsical quality of the, the images too, I think. And then as the images unfolded, I approached a colleague again, who I've mentioned before, Sue Kohlberg, who's a wonderful book designer and typographer, and asked her to come in and, and collaborate. And she started to develop these hashtags, things like misinformation, think accuracy, face masks, and that those were paired with the relief prints I was making. And ultimately, I think one of the big ideas behind the project is to think about this really uh, tough issue around slow and fast reading. Uh, you know, as you know, as we all know, one of the big problems with social media, with the internet, is we end up sharing information so quickly, right, that we don't stop and think. And what we hoped kind of comes up in the work is this idea that the images are, are kind of abstract, they're mysterious, they're ambiguous, they demand, I hope, a kind of a slow read. Mm -hmm. The text pieces are a kind of immediate response to a problem, right? Like, you know, we need to counter misinformation. So the, I hope that the work, there's this kind of play between between the slow and the fast in terms of how we process information. 
Yeah, and I think just having that block of text in there too is something that has to calls into somebody seeing it the question of like, okay, what's the, what's the relationship to these two things here? Like you're, you know, problem solving, you're starting to kind of take on some of the characteristics too of even the language, like super spreader, for example, has this, you know, something that you could easily see standing in for like a mouth. And there are these kind of, you know, directional lines and angled lines coming out of it. And so I would imagine that there's a little bit of a relationship between that aspect of it as well. I want to commend Sue. I think she did a really interesting thing of in that piece or all the text, she would break the break the text up in different the type up in different colors, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this further slowing of uh, the language where you, that talks about the complication of language as well, which also kind of slows you down, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, it's just fascinating to kind of think about all the different iterations of you know collaboration in, in your work. And I feel like I glossed over the evolving anatomies because I would imagine you know work like that is going to you know very literally kind of inform that language that that came afterwards in terms of this publication. Yeah, absolutely. And Evolving Anatomies was an interesting work because Marilyn Oliver works a lot with contemporary imaging technology, Mm -hmm. so CT scans, MRIs. And so we that was an exciting project in that I was doing more traditional carving and and silkscreen and that sort of thing. And she brought this kind of high-tech imaging technology and, you know, layered them. It was was fun to layer and, and create a kind of palimpsest between those two languages. Yeah. And again, it's just fascinating to kind of see the the work turn from being explorations of these kind of fantastical landscapes to these inner landscapes to the anatomy being an, a big influence or the history of print. So to kind of think about like where you're at now, I mean, is what, what types of collaborations do you have in the works for 2021 and, and or, you know, kind of coming up? Yeah. So there's a couple of projects coming up. There's an exhibition at Museum London in Ontario called Gardenship and State. And it's exploring questions around, I mean, I think a lot of things, but issues around the environment again, uh, issues around colonialism. Um, And so I'm really pleased to be part of that project. And I'm making some sculptural works for that project that are reference children's toys. And they kind of come out of a recent work called Powerline that was shown uh, at the Art Gallery of Alberta, where I made a kind of sculpture of a power pylon. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of printing and making these sculptures, thinking about the ways that we educate, the way we teach our young people about the world and how we frame them, and hoping these sort of sculptural toys can bring up some of those questions in relationship to other questions like how do we respond to the environment. So that's one project. I also have a project that will be opening soon. And I've organized a online exhibition slash performance space that's invited people to submit work that is a response to COVID-19. So either work that thematically deals with COVID-19 or that they're responding and, and saying how that they've continued to make work in response to COVID-19. So for example, musicians who maybe had to shift their practice. So that's opening this Friday. This site will go live and you can go to covidcreative.ca and then there'll be a sort of opening event next Friday for that. And And it's a project that's meant to be ongoing and uh, I'm hoping to get ongoing submissions for it uh, so it'll kind of build over time. And is that where people can go to find out more information in terms of future opportunities, things like that? Yeah. So if you go to covidcreative.ca, um, you can, um, there's a, a page uh, on how to submit work. Yeah, there for sure. And I should note that the piece that I'm, you know, infodemic piece that I made with Sue and my brother is actually on that site as well, because it obviously relates to COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's something that as I've been, you know, speaking with artists in the past year, you know, it's just been fascinating to think about how much of an impact that's had, you know, in, in terms of studio practice, but then especially the the types of works and things that everyone is exploring. So, you know, I would I would think that that's something that, even though it's not, it's 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 completely related, right? You've been talking about kind of environmental disasters and our relationship to the world, and again, this is kind of something that is almost foreshadowed in your work. I would say almost, you know. Yeah, and I mean it's been it's been great to work on this this project, and you know it's it's one of those things where it's simultaneously uplifting because it's great to see how artists are 
sort of responding to this terrible challenge, but also, of course, upsetting because there's lots of, you know, difficult issues, right, that people are tackling, health issues, economic issues, racist issues, right, that have, that have surrounded the p- pandemic. Yeah, it's also just kind of scary to kind of think about how things, I guess, continue to evolve, too, you know, in terms of variations of strains and, you know, how that's going to impact things in the future. So it, it just seems like, I don't know, hopefully our, our 2021 becomes a, a not just an extended 2020 or, you know, I don't want to look back on this down down the down the road in the future, but I guess that's kind of the world that we're living in now, too, is to, to think about how, you know, we're all impacted. Part of what's so hard for everyone, of course, is the uncertainty, right? I mean, there's many things that are hard, but uncertainty is, is difficult to live with. And, you know, we, we talked earlier about how important art is to help us cope. And I, this is a perfect example, right? I mean, I think artists that are making work in response to COVID, uh, you know, help us to um, understand it and help us to deal with it, I think, in, in very real ways, right? Yeah, well, and I think that's got to be one of the things that'll be interesting in terms of the the folks that are, you know, submitting and and kind of sharing stuff. I would imagine that there's a huge gamut of different approaches and methodologies. I'm assuming. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, a uh, couple of things that come to mind. Um, there's a, a great artist in in uh, Windsor, Ontario. Her name is Jennifer Willett, and she made this great piece that explores, you know, the fact that when the lockdown happened. You know, she she has to, you know, simultaneously continue in her job, but also, you know, her kids are now home from school. And how do you negotiate that? And what are the anxieties that come from that? And and on the one hand, it's it's lighthearted. But on the other hand, it's, you know, tackling tough questions. So that's an example. Another another examples that come to mind are, um, you know, some really powerful drawings by an artist by the name of Blair Brennan, who had to go. He had other health issues when the pandemic hit, but because of the pandemic was much more isolated, couldn't get the support from family. And they're very, you know, powerful, hard hitting drawings, you know, that I think speak to the the really extreme, extremely difficult situation some people are in. Yeah. Well, again, it sounds fascinating and I'm sure that, you know, it's going to be exciting to kind of see all the work in that. So as we're kind of getting wrapped, you know, just remind us, where, where's the best place to check out your work? Yeah, so website is easy. It's www.seancoffield.ca. Again, I'd mention this covidcreative.ca, so please check that out. Instagram, I can never, Caulfield143. <laughs> it is. You're regretting um, that now, but I bet uh, Caulfield was taken. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so. And that's, yeah, in terms of kind of social media presence, that's mostly what I have. Yeah, well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. I would imagine, again, there was a, a project that you were, you know, being pulled away from on your sabbatical. So it's been really enjoyable to to meet up and, and talk to you all about your work. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been uh, it's been great, and thanks, thank you for uh, for the interest. Thanks so much to Sean for joining me. Check out his work at seancaulfield.ca. You can also find him on Instagram at caulfield143. Got a slew of exhibition information. So the first one, covidcreative.ca. Go there, check out the exhibition that just opened. And once again, if you want to see the exhibition or maybe even apply, you can find information there. That's covidcreative.ca. Another exhibition, Gardenship and State. That's gardenship.ca. Immunations is another project, an exhibition that should be traveling to the McMaster Museum of Art in the fall, provided that COVID is kept at bay. You can find more information about it at immunations.com. Last but not least is Anatomy Table, which opens at the Spencer Art Museum February 20th and runs through May 16th. If you didn't have time to write that down, go to studiobreak.com. We've got all those linked up in Sean's interview. Once again, Studio Break features a variety of different artists. They come on, they share their work, they talk all about it, and you can find plenty to listen to on studiobreak.com. So please check out our archived episodes. You can, of course, listen on studiobreak.com using the default player, but you can also subscribe to the podcast, which is super easy. It's a great studio companion, and you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. You can listen to what other artists are doing and thinking about. 
Recent episodes include Ashley Morton, Isadora Stowe, Rebecca Casement, Doug Russell, Jennifer Small. So check those out if you haven't listened to them already. And if you enjoy the podcast, please share it. Let us know. You can earn some karma points, and it's always nice to spread the word. So we appreciate that. And, of course, give us a shout-out on social media. You can like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Today's music by Remedial Indie Band, which features Ben Cohan, myself, and Brett Beery. Ben's work you can find on Instagram. Follow him at Studio. And check out his paintings at mbencohan.com. You can find out more about Brett by following him on Instagram. That's Brett Beery. And he's got an album there linked, so check that out. And though I need to find time to change my website up, you can check out my work at davidlinaway.com. And, of course, be sure to say hello. You can find me in a variety of places. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at David Linaway. So be sure to say hello. And that's it. That's the end. We are done. I hope that you are having a fabulous time working away in the studio. Staying positive. We'll talk to you real soon.